The Self-Aware Leader, Chapter 8, Seeing Your Margins. The paper used for standard letter writing and school essays is 8.5 by 11 inches or 93.5 square inches. Most teachers require 1-inch margins for class papers. That's the standard we've become accustomed to seeing. But have you ever stopped to consider what percentage of the page that margin occupies? When I ask people, most answer anywhere from 15 to 25%. But a 1-inch margin on a standard-sized paper is 37.4% of the page's area. More than one-third of the page is given to space. And that's just around the edges. When you double-space the lines of text, the majority of the paper is blank. The empty border helps us focus on the printed text. It creates a comfortable feel for our eyes. Stylish magazines help readers focus on the text and images by using large amounts of margin on each page. Sometimes we use even more margin in catalogs and on blogs. Sometimes people think that margin, sometimes called white space, is wasteful and inefficient. They pack as much print as possible on the page. Single-space text, half-inch margins, it may be efficient, but it is achingly ineffective. Have you ever seen a page packed with text from top to bottom and side to side? I get tired looking at it, even before I begin reading it. Obviously, I'm inviting you to think about something other than publishing. I want you to think about your life, margins and space in our lives, blank spaces on our calendars, can give us room to think, to form thoughts, to group ideas, and to refresh our soul in thinking. We know that, but few of us live like we do. We hustle to be productive, packing our lives with interaction and activity. As soon as we wake, we scroll through our smartphone apps. Right before bed, we're checking as well. Research has shown both practices to be harmful to us, but we keep doing it. In between, we are constantly active, striving toward something. We long for more time for healthy living and regret how little time we have for it. Margins are curious things once you become aware of how large they are. It looks like 37%, at least, of a normal page is uh, empty. Well, we think it is empty, but it's not. It's full of margin. Think about it. Margin plays a very important role. Margin has substance, and it interacts with how we live, our heart, and how we think, our mind, and how we act, our hands. We create new thoughts, we respond, and we reflect by writing in the margins. Our thumbs hold the page secure at the margins. We focus because there are margins. What if we took the margin principle and applied it to our lives? Think of the roughly 112 waking hours we have every week. What if 37% of our week were unstructured and available for establishing healthy practices in our lives? What would you do if you had six hours a day available as margin? It's creative white space, 37% of your day, to be used for being healthy in heart, soul, mind, and strength. What would you do? Let's think about how we spend those hours now. Watching a movie, on the smartphone, working around the house, out for a night on the town, reading, praying, exercising, spending time with family. There's a debate on what constitutes good recreation and healthy practices, so I'll leave it up to you. 
But here's my advice. Healthy margins are worth your best. You can see the challenge. We fill those hours with activities that may not be healthy. Our days off don't always look much different from our work days. Keeping a Sabbath focused on how good and trustworthy God is seems a rare practice even for those in Christian ministry. It's no wonder that we soon find ourselves running on empty, with little margin for anything to go wrong. What if our lives were marked with a maturity rooted in rich themes of study, reflection, and prayer? How would these disciplines affect the work we care about? Imagine the gymnast on the balance beam. She performs her routine on a long beam just four inches wide. A trained gymnast knows that four inches is enough, although there is little margin for error to the right or left as she flips and cartwheels back and forth. But it feels as if people in ministry run their lives like they're balancing on a two-inch wide beam, half the space that we need. We've tried to run without margin for so long that we get stretched too thin, all the way to the edge. So... When a wind comes that blows against us or shakes our standing, we easily fall. Consider these examples. We procrastinate to the very edge of time. Then something goes wrong. We are creating our own stress and we panic under the pressure. We wait to prepare for a talk and give a half-hearted lesson, thinking that is our best effort. We're becoming used to less than our best. We fail to stay current on ministry-related conversations, not growing in skills and understanding. We give little time to studying and finding ourselves unable to answer people's hard questions. We falter and are embarrassed when we are asked questions that should be easily answered. We know deep down that our lack of study makes us feel this way. When I come alongside and coach people in leadership, I look for the margins of how they're doing spiritually, emotionally, mentally, socially, and psychologically. I look for how narrow their balance beam is and how quickly life can knock them off balance. Then I look for a third kind of margin, which I'll share later in this chapter. Margin in God's Direction When we look at the margin God built into the lives of His people, we usually think of Sabbath. We know that the Ten Commandments include Sabbath. God's people were called to devote one day a week to not working. But God was interested in more than just a once a week time of rest. In his conversational commentary on Nehemiah, John Swanson identifies six margin giving routines in the life of Israel. Daily routines. In the beginning of his story, Nehemiah prays morning and evening about the broken walls of Jerusalem. This seems to be part of his normal practice, not just because of the crisis. In this, he echoes the practice of the Levites, who prayed in front of the altar morning and evening. Stopping to pray acknowledges the presence of God in our ministry day. Weekly Routines Sabbath was a weekly reminder of God's rest after creation and God's rescue of His people from Egypt. We can pause daily, but we need a longer time each week to refresh and remember. To set aside our lists and remember that the strength and direction come from God. For workers in ministry, this may need to be a day other than Sunday. Monthly Reminders Leadership research says leaders should reinforce vision every 28 days or so. That need, which is built into our hearts, may be why God told the people to make a sacrifice every new moon. We need time to stop and recalibrate our hearts. Annual Routines 
Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Feast of Weeks are examples of annual celebrations in the life of Israel. God didn't intend these to be legalistic restrictions. He meant them to be times when the people would tell the stories of God's work to their children. They were times of eating together and sharing food with those who were lacking. Reminders every seven years. God had laid out a Sabbath year, a time when debts were canceled and the land wasn't worked. The people were supposed to remember that God had given them the promised land, created by God, given by God, watered by God. But the people didn't practice this routine, and the exile was a way to give the land and the people the margin they hadn't given themselves. Once-in-a-lifetime celebrations. The dedication of the wall that Nehemiah and the people built was a unique time of celebration. But the biggest celebration Israel was to observe was the year of Jubilee, every 50 years. It was a Sabbath of Sabbath years. It was supposed to be huge, and there is no record that Israel ever kept it. Stopping long enough to pray morning and evening brackets the ministry day. A weekly Sabbath resets our lives around God's time, God's people, and God's presence. A monthly celebration recalibrates our vision. Annual holidays renew the stories of God that we are a part of. Regular but infrequent long breaks give us restoration. And once-in-a-lifetime events tell us what we are living toward. It occurs to me that if we add up the Sabbaths, the monthly celebrations, and the feasts, God laid out a life in which about a third of the year was margin. I know that Paul talks to the Colossians about not judging others for how they keep the new moon festival. But God was laying out margins to be filled by him. When we fill them with obligation, we are adding more work, not margin. But if we fill them with worship, play, community, rest, and relationship, we may find the context for spiritual growth that God intended. Margins for the heart. We are to love God with our soul, strength, mind, and heart. With the heart, we revere Christ as Lord and are strengthened. Our heart makes us do some unexpected things. We'll drive for hours at odd times of the day just to see a girlfriend or boyfriend. We'll dress in ways unfit for the dinner table when attending sporting events. We do crazy things for our affections. I have a scar on my right thumb from celebrating a well-timed Willie McGee triple in the 1982 World Series. My hand sliced through a ceiling light when I jumped up from the couch in joy. Which margin crumbles first? It isn't how we act or think, but our affections. I've rarely met a Christian worker who says they're satisfied with their devotional life. And as you know, the word devotion is about affections. When we are devoted to someone or something, our hearts are in it. Our passion is engaged. And every moment with the one we are devoted to helps that passion deepen. We are invited to be spiritually formed in our lives exhibiting Christ's likeness to the world through the power of the Holy Spirit. This requires a different approach from one shaped by consumerism, where the focus is on what we can get out of it and how our spiritual life serves us. We serve Jesus Christ in ministry, and He calls us to follow Him. He exhibited a life of prayer and time away. So should we. Earlier, I discussed the ups and downs of our emotions while in ministry. It's worth our time to reflect on the margins of our emotions. This is easy to write about, but hard to practice. 
Those who are new to ministry need to think about how they will maintain resiliency, renew their emotions, and grow in emotional maturity. This area is a common tripping point for Christian workers. As mentioned earlier, ministry is like an 80-ton press that continues to push down on us, splintering our balsa veneer and crumbling defenses while oozing out our hidden emotional substance. Then we see spikes in our emotional responses. We react too quickly and have no room for wisdom and reflection. The press of ministry knocks some of us off balance, and we either need a healthy dose of forgiveness and grace, or we quit. Is managing your emotions like walking on a balance beam? Do you find that you can be off the beam in a hurry? If you want to create margin for your heart, I'd like to suggest three practices. 15 minutes of morning coffee or tea with God. Bill Hybels describes a morning practice of spending 15 minutes in a chair with a Bible and a journal, if you wish, and God. I have a friend who has been doing this for a couple of years. The chair was his grandfather's. He gets up at 5.30, makes coffee, and then sits down at 5.45 to read and write and pray. The first words in his journal are often, Good morning, Father. The scripture reading can be from a sermon, from Proverbs, or prompted by a question that he is wrestling with. And the prayer, which usually happens in the journal, is informal and conversational. Often he'll write the question, and the answer will come to him. Though it sounds a little odd to say that, he writes, I know that the writing slows my mind to prayer speed, and interacting with the Bible feels like conversation. Restore your soul with things that give you life. The psalmist says of the shepherd, He leads me besides quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. So, what work of God gives you life? One way to tell if something moves you to the soul level is if the experience makes you weep. One friend loves live, unamplified music. The sound of a children's choir or an orchestra can captivate him. Another pastor friend loves to attend worship at a church of another denomination. Participating in a service without having any responsibilities to lead gives a freedom. Take a few minutes and reflect on the kinds of experiences that restore your soul. Wilderness, art, crafting wood, flying, jamming with friends. If you can identify experiences like these, schedule them. Walk if you can with someone if possible. Not everyone can walk, but if you can walk or ride or roll, build that kind of activity into your schedule. I understand that it seems strange to include physical activity in practices of the heart, but walking can help your emotional health as well as your actual heart. It is slow enough to allow you to think, but active enough to get you away from technology, sitting, and the usual distractions of your day. Walking with someone can build community. Exercise helps with thinking, and think about the number of conversations Jesus had with people along the road. Mental margins. The one who gets wisdom loves life. The one who cherishes understanding will soon prosper. Proverbs 19, verse 8. As the wise writer of Proverbs teaches, the older you get, the more you realize how important knowledge is. The way we write wisdom into the white space of our minds gives us resources for offering and receiving counsel, for choosing between alternatives, for setting value on the outcomes of our potential choices. 
There are many ways to gain wisdom. We're shaped by who we spend time with and what we read. We've talked in other places about relationships, so here I want to talk about reading. We shape our thinking in dramatic ways through disciplined reading. I'm surprised by how strongly various experts challenge today's leaders about reading. Bill Hybels wrote, I have little patience with leaders who get themselves into leadership binds and then confess that they haven't read a leadership book in years. John Wesley reportedly told young leaders to read or get out of the ministry. If we look back over the last month at what we watched and read, in what subject would others say we're developing our expertise? In our Google age, knowing stuff seems outdated when you can just Google it. That quick access culture works against practices like study that work to cultivate depth of thought. Unless we're intentional, the internet will shift our focus toward pop culture instead of wisdom and knowledge sources. These influences affect more than just our knowledge building, though. Few face-to-face conversations take place without frequent checks of a smartphone to see who else wants our attention. Binge-watching a video series over a weekend is more appealing than a two-hour retreat for prayer and scripture study. Leaders today have to give consistent attention to how they are growing mentally in an age of hyper-reality and soundbite thinking. Critical thinking and mature wisdom are the skills that separate leaders, influencers, and decision-makers from others. Those attributes contribute to leadership success and, ironically, higher pay in the corporate world. And the devaluation of education and knowledge can slip into how we think about church and ministry leadership. Developing our depth of thinking and wisdom will help us address our tendency to make impulsive decisions. Christian ministries can be notorious for swinging on a pendulum toward the latest trends. We grab at what works without much consideration of anything more. And ten years later, we grab at something different. So we see ministries running to and fro as they try to navigate the cultural currents. Margins help us develop our innovative leadership thinking. There's a reason we seem more creative when we're younger. We have time to be. There's a common rule that we're most creative when we're working at about 60% of capacity. When was the last time your work only took up 60% of your waking hours? Some of us fill these hours to their capacity, wearing ourselves out in the process and losing our creative space. When we establish margins for mental development, we are careful with what we put on our schedules, and we allow for some play space to reflect, create, and not be taking in new information. What fuels your innovative thinking? When was the last time you had a genuinely creative idea? What will it take for you to stay innovative, fresh, and relevant to the times as you age? What can you instill in your life now that will foster your creativity? Here are two questions to help you think about creating margin in your mind. What was the last book you read? Mike is a leader in a mission agency. He never was a reader until someone challenged his team to read 10 books in a year. He started reading. Then he started asking other leaders for recommendations. Whether a book was short or long did not matter. He just kept reading. Now he's known as the guy who always has a recommendation for a book to read. And he annoys his pastor by asking, what's the last book you read? So that's my question for you. If you can't answer it, consider being like Mike. As you develop your reading habit, it's important to read widely. For instance, 
Are some of the authors you are reading different from you? Do you read books authored by both men and women? Are you being stretched by a variety of people from different perspectives and backgrounds? Or are all the people you are reading of the same generation, racial and ethnic background, and denominational tradition? What question about God are you answering? What characteristics of God are you tracing through Scripture? This question is inspired by Pam Slim, who talks about creating a body of work. She defines this as everything you create, contribute, affect, and impact. It is the personal legacy you leave at the end of your life, including all the tangible and intangible things you have created. A body of work is easy to see when we think about writers. We know that after 40 years studying Paul, N.T. Wright produces commentaries and theology books. John Maxwell writes on leadership and has sold more than 20 million books. He started his studies of leadership and service when he was still in high school, and his dad gave him a reading list. But your body of work doesn't have to be books. It can be conversations with young leaders or well-crafted worship events or thoughtful, quiet hospital visits that put flesh on your understanding of God's compassion or glory or relationships. If you started pursuing answers to a question about God or about ministry, imagine what you would know and live. Margins for our work. At some point, we have to recognize that life can't be lived well when we're pressed past the margins of our time. If by day three of a vacation, we are ready to get back to work, we may be striving for something counter to the biblical view of life lived well. I'm as driven as most, and I love to work. But I'm a better person when, in my margins, I'm taking the time to read, have meaningful conversation with others, enjoy nature, and giving my time and attention to others. As a teenager, I wanted to be in the Navy, and I learned about a tactic that attack submarines employ when searching for enemy vessels. Submarines conduct a series of sprints interspersed with periods of drifting. When drifting, they float at three knots and are actually quieter than the surrounding ocean due to their sound-absorbent anionic coating. When a vessel is heard some distance away, the sub will go very deep and sprint at 20 knots or more to get closer and ahead of the target. The subs do not sprint for long periods because they cannot listen well while moving fast. After a sprint, they drift again, listening for their objective. I've found the sprint drift principle helpful in Christian ministry and leadership. There are times when we need to sprint, moving quickly and efficiently. It can last for weeks, perhaps months, but it needs to be followed by quieter times of drifting and listening. Each fall, I sprint for four months with a full schedule of conferences, teaching, and speaking engagements. After that, I have a period of drifting before returning to a shorter sprint period in spring when I have room to work on writing projects. That is followed by a short drift period in May before the summer season of consulting. I bet your year has its own sprint drift seasons as well. The key is not to sprint so long that no amount of drifting will bring you back to normal speed. We should never let the fast speeds be an excuse for abandoning the necessary spiritual disciplines or to push aside intimacy with Jesus. How does this look in ministry? Church worship leaders know that there are incredible expectations and opportunities around Christmas. 
We plan services and specials. We pray for clarity in every element of the services for people who only attend around Christmas. We rehearse many extra people, and we survive. But what do we do the Sunday after Christmas? Some people start working on Easter services. Those who understand the principle of sprint and drift know that a little space in January will actually help with Easter by allowing the congregation and the worship leader to recover from an intense Advent season. Sprint drift has been part of my life for a long time. I learned it while I was a serious runner. There is a method of training designed to build a runner's speed and capacity. Fartlek training requires running fast for a short distance and then jogging until you recover and your heart rate and breathing slow. Then you sprint again. It looks odd and feels strange to do, but the exertion during the sprints helps develop endurance and grow the capacity for more. The potential for success in future races isn't drained by the sprinting, it's developed. If, and only if, it's counterbalanced by the recovery periods. How do we recover from an illness? Usually, we rest. The busyness of life and leadership is not our ally in our spiritual formation. Richard Foster says that hurry, along with noise and crowds, opposes our spiritual growth. Yet, how often do we create space in our lives, get away from the constant soundtrack in our earbuds, and be quiet? Sometimes we think we're alone, but our phone, iPad, and laptop are at our side so we don't miss anything, and we keep living and leading while others demand our time and attention. Retreats, camps, and short-term trips are such powerful experiences because we're spending time away and giving attention to things that we've long ignored. To gain fresh perspective and listen to the Holy Spirit, we need to do the same personally. So what can you do? Here's one exercise. Number one, make a three-month calendar. Number two, identify the sprint times that are coming in the next three months. Number three, a couple of days before and after the sprint times, block out times for spiritual reading, rest, prayer, and recovery. Actually write them on your calendar and keep them clear of other activities. Managing our time. Though not all margins are about time, disciplined time management is an important skill for ministry success, and a lack of time management contributes to an inability to be productive in ministry. The following are five time management practices that you can begin this week. They will help you to be more disciplined and productive and establish better margins in your life. Number one, work in 90-minute increments. Some experts think we're wired to work 90 minutes at a time. They recommend starting a timer, work on your project for 90 minutes with no interruptions, then take a break for at least 60 minutes for other responsibilities or renewal activities. If you gave six hours of your best uninterrupted time each day to your primary work tasks, you would focus more on your work than the average worker gives their work each day. Number two. Work in 25-minute increments. If 90 minutes seems ambitious, then try a 25-minute version. Work for 25 minutes and then take a 5-minute break. Keep doing this throughout the day and see if it helps. Number three, each week find two hours to be alone and in silence. No music, books, or a Bible are allowed, as are paper and pen. 
I recommend no computer or tablet and definitely no phone. Nothing should be allowed to penetrate the silence. You can do it. The rest of your life will still be there after the 120 minutes, about the length of a popular movie. Get alone with God. Let Him tell you why you are there. Number four, every six weeks, spend a day away in solitude and study. No technology if possible. If music is helpful, go the first half without it and end with it. And number five, track your time for a week, at least once a month. Create a weekly grid with a column for every day and then a row for every 30 minutes from 7 a.m. until 9 p.m. Keep track of how you spend those 14 hours each day, writing something in every box. Go over it with your supervisor and then make a plan or schedule for the following week that addresses some of the patterns you noticed. Burnout. Burnout is in the top three topics of concern for ministry leaders. It's mentioned nearly weekly in Christian leadership circles because so many people report experiencing it. We come to the end of our emotions and abilities, and we feel barren, empty, and dusty. I think Parker Palmer's definition of burnout is helpful. Though usually regarded as the result of trying to give too much, burnout, in my experience, results from trying to give what I do not possess. What I do not possess. Think about that in relation to burnout and to margins. We try to fire up our work and offer something to others. But our carafe is nearly empty. And, like a little coffee on a burner over time, we burn, begin to smoke, and stink. What was once full of flavor and aromatic appeal becomes tarry and repugnant. Burnout is like the symptom, not the problem. The problems are found along the path toward burnout. I walked into Peter Devon's office. He was a former pastor who burned out in ministry. All of his books, papers, mailers, and even his seminary transcripts were untouched. It looked as if he had been in the office the day before. But he had left 18 months prior. It was a bit spooky. I met with the volunteers. They were fried too. And bitter about the pastor's sudden abandonment even a year and a half later. Devin's path to burnout sounded familiar. Isolation from others, inability to learn from others, lack of a mentor, ministering out of an achievement approach versus shepherding, and a personal inability to practice Christ-centered spiritual disciplines. The church had just hired his replacement, so there was hope for better days ahead. We will grow weary in ministry. It's part of the job. Jesus grew weary. But I think self-sufficiency is the potting soil in which burnout sinks its roots. We've filled ourselves with ourselves, and that won't nurture us for very long. Neither will it bear any fruit. We think we can save one more person, leap one taller building, and flex our muscles and will overcome any dry periods. We forget what Jesus demonstrated. Ministry is doing the Father's work, not ours. Jesus regularly turned to his Father for refreshment, recalibration, and rest. And we don't. We neglect the soul of our leadership development and forget that at the core is a leader who needs to grow and develop too. The path out of burnout is not to do more, but to rest, renew, and be revived in God, allowing the Spirit to heal and mend. Margins give us space to do that. Margins matter. 
What irritates you about drivers on the road? Not using a turn signal? Going too slow? Tailgating? Texting while driving? People who honk their horn at you the second the light turns green? I've ridden in cars with men and women who love Jesus and give graciously to the church and missions, but once they're in a car, there's a big change. They honk their horns or call other drivers turkey or worse. There's something about the rules of the road and our own desire to get somewhere fast that brings out raw emotion. We feel superior to others on the road. Our travel is more important than the purposes of others on the road. We see other drivers' needs, even to drive safely, and desires to look at the scenery as less legitimate than ours. We believe that other drivers are in our way. It's irrelevant that they are trying to get somewhere as well, until we realize that we know the other driver from church. What if we assume that everyone is trying to drive his or her best? What if we assume that others are equally concerned about many of the same things that agitate us? We could do the same in the rest of life, too. What if we begin trusting others more in ministries, businesses, and churches where mistrust is too common? While we are pushing to the edge of our margins in time, hurry, noise, and crowds, we bump up against others who are pushing to similar edges. What if we gave some margin to each other? Some of us give more space to people we know than people we don't. Some of us do the opposite. But what if we gave grace-filled, grace-granting margin to those who irritate us, who bless us, who we lead, who we follow, who have loved us, and who have hurt us? It's in the margins where creativity hangs out, where spirit-led reflections allow us to see blind spots in our spiritual life. It's in the margins where God makes notes on our story. It's where we see that we need to forgive as we're forgiven. It's in the margins where we allow God to grow us in grace toward others and deeper trust in Christ. For greater awareness. Number one, are you comfortable with the margins in your life? Do you see areas where you might need to make a larger margin to work better and more efficiently? Number two, what does establishing margins in your everyday life look like? What do margins on a yearly basis look like for you? Number three, What is your plan for making sure that you have spiritual margins? Have you been embarrassed or caught off guard when asked a question that you should have known the answer to? How can you prevent that as you set up spiritual margins? Number four, in our day, social margins can be hard to set. What is your philosophy on your social media usage? Do you have one you can easily articulate to others? Should we have margins on it? Number five, The Apostle Paul says that we are to redeem time. Go back through the chapter and look at some of the exercises relating to making the most of your time. What changes could you make to be more effective?